There I am. Okay. The mask and microphone and hair and notes. That's a lot to handle in the first minute. Like Randy said, I'm Megan. For those of you who don't know me, um, I've been a member of the teaching team for a couple years. I love the Word of God. I especially love how just how it penetrates the soul and just one little word can change your life, can change your week, can change your heart. Uh, so I'm really excited for today because all I have is one, one little verse. As I've been working on this message, there's been a line from a pretty old movie running through my head. Um, the movie is called Where the Heart Is. Do you guys know that one? Old movie with Natalie Portman. She plays a young pregnant woman who gets abandoned at a Walmart in a small town in Oklahoma. And since she has no place to go, she hides in the Walmart <laughs> until it's time to give birth. Um, one afternoon, she's out in the parking lot and she meets the woman who's running the local welcome wagon, super small town, Oklahoma. Uh, her name's Thelma. And Thelma asks her, do you read the Bible? And Novali says, not as much as I should. Thelma replies, good. I think that's good. Folks read too much of it, they get confused. That's why I like to hand out one chapter at a time so they can deal with their confusion as it comes. And I think that's been on my mind, first of all, because we are only talking about one little tiny piece of scripture today. One verse, actually, it's not even a whole verse. It's like half of a verse. And secondly, as simple as this verse is, it's had me perplexed, confused even. Uh, the verse is simple enough to read and to understand, but the complexity, as is often the case with scripture, is in living it out and understanding it. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, um, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter 5, 5b. Honestly, if you're not already there, I bet I can read it before you get there. <laughs> 1 Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So today, because we just have a little time, I'm going to walk you through this verse just simply, phrase by phrase, and if there's any confusion, we'll deal with it as it comes. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. In the last few chapters of this, of this book, Peter has actually issued the command to submit four times. Do you have this next slide? This is a familiar one. This has been a hard sermon series, hasn't it? Looking at these ideas. Peter told his readers to be subject to human institutions, like governors. That hits close to home, doesn't it? or emperors. He told servants to be subject to their masters or slaves to be subject to their masters. And he told wives to be submissive to their husbands. Those first three right there were mostly in the context of how to interact with a secular authority, right? How does a Christian interact with a government made up of non-believers? How does a slave or, ser or servant, someone who has been freed in Christ, interact with an unbelieving master? 
And how does a woman, a wife, interact with her non-believing husband? And the answer in each of those cases was to submit, to maintain the order of the culture, to further the kingdom of heaven. And if you haven't heard those messages, I want to I nudge you to go back and take a listen, because those are deep, difficult subjects. And then last week, Peter brought this message of submission into the church, into, um, he, he, he established a hierarchy or an order of submission as well in the church, right? Um, those who are younger in the faith are to submit themselves to the authority of the elders. And now today, Peter pivots a bit. Could you put the, the verse back up there? 5-5. Um, five, five. He pivots a bit. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. He's speaking to the church, to you and to me and to Randy as an elder to clothe himself in submission as well, all of us. There's no longer just humility or submission to those in authority above us. Now there's humility and submission among us. So... Humility is kind of a tricky word in this culture. Could you guys speak to me? Tell me what you think of when you think of the word humility. What synonyms come to mind? What people or acts come to mind when you hear the word humility? The opposite of proud. Opposite of proud. See why it's tricky. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll just go right to the Greek then. Because the Greek word here actually comes, to two, comes from two words. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Do you have it? Yeah, that word. <laughs> and the two words is a compound word actually come from mind and to put it down or to lower it. So it's a humility or humbleness of mind, modesty or lowliness of mind. The idea is to take your mind and set it down low, to put it under. Now, if you remember way back in the beginning of this book, Peter's writing to a group of exiles, people who fled persecution and were starting to make a new life for them in a new region of the Roman Empire. They would have understand, understood this idea of hierarchy and submission in a very different way than we do. Because the Roman government had all kinds of social hierarchies. Okay, at, at the top, of course, was the emperor, worshipped, as a god who had absolute authority. Beneath him were various regional governors and even kings underneath the emperor. He actually had a, an elected senate for part of the Roman Empire who advised him. Um, and of course, they had an elaborate military, the kind of military you would need to run an empire that surrounded the entire Mediterranean Sea. And then additionally, Roman citizens had rights and privileges that non-Roman citizens didn't have, okay? They could own property. They actually paid fewer taxes. They had the ability to sue. There was a different structure. Roman citizens could not be whipped or tortured or killed by the government unless they were actually convicted of treason. That right wasn't granted to non-Roman citizens. And although women were still beneath men, <laughs> Roman women were less beneath men 
than non-Roman women, if you can follow that. Another defining category was status, right? Freedmen had a higher status than slaves. The wealthy had a higher status than the poor. And of course, that's not so different from today. Except in Rome, those roles had customs that governed interactions and even the way you could dress. And this verse in Peter actually references a dress code, and that doesn't come across in the English. Embedded in the Greek language is a word picture. Um, that phrase that says, clothe yourselves in humility, is actually referencing the clothing of a slave. One commentary I read said that a slave in Peter's day had a white sash or an apron that he would somehow tie into belt loops that indicated his role and differentiated him from a, a freed man. It made it obvious to everyone that he was there, ready to serve, ready to do what he was told to do. And that made me think about Olympia. Because <laughs> in Olympia, um, a lot of times the rich and the poor generally wear the same thing, right? Like jeans, a t-shirt, jeans, a t-shirt, and sneakers, or running clothes, or Birkenstocks. We all kind of dress the same. In fact, if you dress too fancy here, you kind of get a side eye, am I right? You, you feel out of place. Um, and our culture has hierarchies. We've discussed those a lot in previous months, but we actually try to blur them. We try to hide them. A lot of times, well, I was thinking, for example, I don't know who picks my fruit. I've never met them. I don't know who's made my clothes. The people who serve in our communities are often hidden. Additionally, like, we have the right to vote. If a leader is elected who we don't like, we can cooperatively get together and vote them out. Um, we live with the American dream, this hope of advancement and change. Even like some of the more service positions in the United States and middle-class America tend to be just considered a stepping stone, right? I'm not gonna wait tables forever. And I suspect that we kind of view service toward each other the same way, as temporary. Well, today, I'm gonna serve you, Cameron, maybe next week you'll serve me, and I won't have to wait the tables. So I think Peter's audience would have read this thinking more of a way of life. Put on the apron of a server, put on the coveralls of a custodian, put on the uniform of a maid, and live a life looking out for your brothers and sisters in the faith. Now this is another spot where it gets tricky because if we were to leave the topic of humility in the realm of action, we run into a few problems. The Bible says to put on the clothes of service. So what do I need to do? Make a meal? Teach Sunday school? Set up? Tear down? Preaching, lead worship, how am I going to serve? The problem with to-do lists is that I am just 
as capable of teaching Sunday school with an attitude of pride as I am an attitude of humility. I'm just as capable of making a meal for you with an attitude of pride as with an attitude of humility. Every act of service in the church can be done with an attitude of pride, an attitude of humility, or some messy mixture of the two. The problem with humility is that it is so easily faked. It is so easily faked that it's easy to deceive even ourselves, right? How many times have I said something thinking it was out of love, only to realize later that I really just wanted to be right? How many times have I like stayed to help clean up and only realized later that I kind of just wanted to hang with the cool kids? And those of you who know Jesus know that the good news of the kingdom of heaven is never just about external appearances. That false gospel of external appearances will just leave us weary and bitter and burned out. Has anybody else been there? Yeah. So what Peter does is he moves us quickly out of the realm of appearance, of putting on those clothes, and to the only one who can untangle our motives, back to God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's actually quoting a proverb there. Um, One that's translated toward, um, Proverbs 3.34 says, toward the scorners he's scornful, but to humble he gives favor. God opposes the proud. He goes to war against the proud. He's recalling images of this terrifying Old Testament God, the one to be feared. This week I was reading in the book of Jeremiah. Listen to these truly terrifying words. The Lord speaking to the nation of Babylon. This is an example of what it looks like when God opposes someone. Behold, I'm against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Now that verse would have been really great news to the people who'd been oppressed by Babylon. I mean, do you think that is probably what the the people in Afghanistan are wanting to hear right now, right? That God is against their oppressors. But Peter's taking that image of that conquering God and bringing it within our walls in the church to the proud among us. And it is certainly true that God will take down those in the church who abuse and manipulate and dominate. And those of us who felt that abuse cry out, Amen, Lord, do it quickly. Bring down the proud. Injustice has been allowed to flourish within the church for too long. And candidly, Sometimes God seems to move too slowly, right? 
And while we're waiting for him to demolish systems of pride, God often takes us back to our own hearts, right? Because he's not just opposing the proud among us, but the proud within us. Our God's not going to let pride stand in the hearts of any of his believers. Maybe we need to take a second and define proud. One of my kids, well, it was Miles. You guys all know that. Um, Miles, I, I told him once that I was proud of him, and he said, no. God says not to be proud. <laughs> but that's not the kind of pride that God stands against. Actually, like, God was proud of Jesus. You know, this is my son. With him, I'm well pleased. Right? And we're not, also, we're not talking about pride in our work. God was proud of his work. You know, it was good. We're talking about the pride, the arrogance, the haughtiness that, that, we, that sets us up when we set ourselves up above other people. I know better. I do better. I am better. And I think pride comes right along with false humility. Um, pride would be trusting only in yourself, right? And then false humility is, is the image we put on to protect our own pride. And when we talk about pride and false humility, often we think of somebody brash and outgoing, a big old public authority who puts on the guise of being a servant leader. And that is certainly true. Um, false humility does things for show, but it also looks like other things. Again, this is where my own heart got uncomfortable and confused. Because false humility often shows up in self-martyrdom, right? Making yourself a victim for the benefit of others. No, no, I don't want you to go out of your way for me. I don't want to inconvenience you. Or... Well, nobody else is going to teach Sunday school, so I guess I'll do it. Sorry, Kaylin, I'm picking on Sunday school today. <laughs> um, false humility can show up like not making our own needs known because we're ashamed of them or we don't think we should have those needs, right? That's not actually humility. That's shame, being hard on yourself. Um, to be honest, I find it a hundred times easier to cook a meal for you if you're sick than I do to receive a meal when I'm sick. And so much false humility comes from a place of very deep wounding. They're barriers that we've put in place to protect ourselves because we've been hurt in the past. Vulnerability is painful. But true humility is vulnerable. Another form of counterfeit humility that pops up, especially in the church, is denial. Denial of our abilities. Denial of our callings. Denial of our experience, our gifts. Right? You all have power. Everything you need for life and godliness, you've been gifted. 
Many of you have suffered and overcome, and we need to hear from you. Those of you who hear God's voice, we need to hear from you. I cannot, I have just been basking in last week. I think we saw example of humility after humility last week, right? Like Mary getting up and giving the word of God. Ramsey, the same thing. Bethany, serving a meal to all of us. You know, the group who helped cleaned up. Paul, standing up here and apologizing for hurts he's caused as an elder. Again, I can't judge the heart. Any one of those things could have been done in pride. But gosh, didn't you guys feel God's grace over the church last week? And I think that's a good example of what happens when we do step out in faith and vulnerability and humility. It causes the church to thrive. But denial, suppression of those things isn't humility and it'll suffocate the church, and Jesus actually speaks very firmly against this. Sorry to bring out all the bad scriptures today, the hard ones, but take a look at the parable of the talents. If you want to turn in your Bibles, I'm in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Again, it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who'd received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed? Then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker. So when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus minces no words, does he? Has anyone else heard this parable? And had it cause fear in your heart? Anxiety? Let me point out two things I think that really give me hope and excitement. 
Okay, the master said that literally the servant could have put that one bag of gold in the bank and gotten interest. Now, I have a little money in the bank, and I get like hundreds of pennies of interest on that money every year. God is not actually asking very much of us, right? That interest is, I don't know if it worked the same way it did then as it does now. And then my other favorite thing about this parable is that the one who initially received two talents and invested them received an identical blessing as the one who received five talents and invested them. The only thing the master was asking of them is that they not bury the gold, right? Hiding your talents isn't humility, it's fear. (laughs) And God is asking that we not bury what he's given us. He wants us to humbly take the gold he's entrusted to us and take a risk. Try it out. Don't let your fear of failure influence what you believe about God's character. He's actually a very kind God, generous God. I love this definition of humility from a New Testament scholar, Karen H. Jobs. True humility, as opposed to a contrived, self-degrading humiliation, flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. Humility is going to start in our hearts and then it'll trickle down into our interactions and then that's when it'll spread into service with each other. And let me just say, because I read that parable, If you are a believer in Christ, he has taken any punishment that was yours to bear. Amen? Your future is secure. You're reconciled to God and have no need to fear his wrath. But where there's pride in your heart, he's going to oppose it at every turn. False humility shirks responsibility and builds protective walls around our hearts, but true humility requires vulnerability and risk but reaps the great reward of God's favor. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Beth Moore once said in an interview that she prays every single day, Lord, humble me. Lord, humble me. Because I can't do her voice. Lord, humble me, because pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. She said that in her life, she's seen God's people are going to be humbled one way or another, voluntarily or involuntarily. So she thought she might as well ask the Lord voluntarily, right? Isn't that sweet wisdom? (laughs) Um, Can I tell you a story about me being humbled? I realize it's kind of ironic to tell a story about myself while I'm talking about humility. And it might be a humble brag, but I hope it isn't. <laughs> but after I heard that interview with Beth Moore last spring, I decided to try the same thing. And so I've occasionally asked God to humble me, kind of fearing, like I've been humbled in really big ways in the past, um, kind of afraid to ask. But I figured maybe if I asked for it, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be as bad. And the Lord has been 
so gentle, more gentle than I expected. Um, and one really funny to me example is from when I went backpacking this summer. I actually did my first completely solo backpacking trip. I'm very proud of that. And as I emerged from the wilderness on a Friday evening, I was coming out of three days of near complete solitude. All the people who were backpacking that weekend were coming up, passing me on their way. And it actually kind of felt like a parade of people there to congratulate me. Um, an older, obviously very experienced man stopped me and asked me about conditions, and he asked my advice on route, and that felt really good. And then two older women noticed my pack, and they're like, oh, honey, weren't you afraid? Good for you, I'm so proud. Um, another couple were kind of like into the girl power. You go, girl, we need more women out here by themselves. And they just kept coming. And I was glowing. It made me really happy to have strangers kind of celebrate this accomplishment with me, but I got a little cocky because as I came to the last hundred yards of the trail, I realized I was going pretty fast. And I pulled out my phone to see what time it was. Full confession to really see like how fast I had hiked those miles, but I did it right as I was stepping on a stone to cross a mud puddle. You know what happened, don't you? Yeah, my foot slipped, and the 25-pound pack on my back pulled me down right into the mud puddle, and it kept me there. Right? Like, I, I couldn't just get up. I had to, like, roll up to get out of that mud puddle. And I was covered from hair to boot, on my whole left side in mud, and pine needles, and water, like it was trickling down into everything. And the first thing I did after picking up my phone and wiping it off was I, I literally prayed, oh God, please don't let anybody else walk by. Please don't, please let me make it to the truck on my own. And this is why I think this was God and not a coincidence. Just after I prayed that, a whole line of Native American children in their little red t-shirts and backpacks and walking sticks, obviously some kind of camp, walked by me, passed me on the trail, and like 15 little heads turned and looked at the crazy white lady covered in mud. And you guys, what could I do but laugh? What could I do but laugh? I was covered in mud. And I think the old Megan would have been really full of shame and embarrassed. The new Megan just laughed her way all the way to the truck and laughed her way into taking off my pack and drying off. Um, I was a big, muddy, laughing mess. And I think what I learned is when I asked is when we ask God to show us our pride, he will, right? We're asking him something that he wants to do. And he's not necessarily going to be mean about it, right? That's a fear we have. He absolutely uses horrifying circumstances to pull us closer to him. I don't want to pretend that every way, everything he uses to humble us will be funny. But he also, he's a good, loving father. We don't need to be afraid of him.
Asking God to remove pride is an act of humility, and it's going to be rewarded in the long term or short term with God's grace. And the word grace in this verse, in 1 Peter 5, is a common word that means care, common word, charis, sometimes translated as favor. God pours his favor on, out on those who are humble. And isn't that why we're here? Right? Aren't you here because you want God's favor? You want his help. You want his blessing. You want to know him. That's what we want for our church community. Both this little group here at home and the larger church community. His grace is what removes fear. His grace is what removes shame. His grace is what allows us to face the darkest parts of our soul and still feel his love. His grace allows us as a church to face struggle and to persevere together. His, his favor is what causes the church to thrive. And if you believe God's word is true, that his promises are sure, you have only to gain by asking the Lord to remove pride from your heart. And I feel kind of an urgency for humility right now, right, in part because if I were to open up my phone, most of the internet right now is a brash opinion from somebody with a platform, or conversely, it's people like giving tips on how to engage with humility, you know, five tips for talking to your family members about the vaccine. And I don't want us as a church to be people who just, just take advice on how to be humble, because that opens that door for false humility to creep in. I want us as a church to start by seeking the source of humility, to approach that God who made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. This God who didn't deny his power, he healed people. He spoke tough truths. This God who knows that humble hearts are vulnerable to abuse. They're vulnerable to being misunderstood. They're vulnerable to be, taking to be taken advantage of. He was all those things before we were. He suffered, and he died not as a martyr, but as a willing sacrifice, voluntarily, out of great love for us. He put on that white apron of a slave and washed feet, not because no one else would do it, but out of love and as an example. And this is not a God that we need to fear coming to humbly. He's just waiting to give us his favor, to give us his grace, to ask him. So I'm going to end, but I want to take a moment for us to respond inwardly. I have some questions if you just want to sit and think for a moment. Are there places where you would rather be served 
than to serve? How have you misunderstood humility? Out of your own woundedness, have you built up walls of protection, of martyrdom, or denied your own gifts? How has God humbled you? Because if you're his child, I know. I know. This is his goal for us to be Christ-like. Have it been in really big, dramatic ways? Or small, gentle ways? Do you fear the character of God? That he's going to shame you? Or open you up to ridicule? Or do you trust him with those tender, prideful places of your heart? Let me pray. Lord, good Father, there's so much room here for us to misunderstand you to misunderstand our own hearts, to misunderstand each other, to misunderstand humility. Lord, this afternoon, I pray for those places of woundedness where we've built up walls of self-protection and shut others out because of it, where we haven't been willing to receive humbly as well as to give humbly. Lord, I see you at work in this church. I see you raising people up. I see us acting and serving with love and generosity and humility, and I praise you. God, we give you our hearts, those tender, vulnerable places, and we trust them to you.